Amen. Please be seated. We come now to the preaching of God's Word as we find it this evening in Hebrews chapter 9, where we'll read from verse 11 through verse 15. Hebrews chapter 9, reading from verse 11 on page 1006 of the church Bibles. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and cows, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, He is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since the death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Let us pray. Lord our God, as we come now to study Your Word this evening and to look at the finished work of our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray that You would enlighten our eyes in the knowledge of Him, that You would come and lead us now to behold His glory, to see Him as He is, and to worship Him as we ought. Amen. The central point of the book of Hebrews is to reveal the surpassing worth of Jesus Christ and to show that He is worthy of losing everything for. As these first century Christians found themselves in a situation in which the world around them was pressing in against them because of their faith of, in Jesus, this letter was to show them, was written to show them the surpassing wonder of Jesus Christ and to drive into their hearts that no matter the cost to them to be His disciple, what they had gained in Him far eclipsed anything that they could lose. Yes, the, the writer is saying to them, they might well lose their social standing because of their Christianity. They might well lose their friends. They might even lose their families. Yes, he is saying to them, you might even find your property confiscated. You might lose your liberty. Your faith might cost you everything, but Jesus is supremely worthy. And Jesus Christ, the author wants to make clear, they had gained far more than they could ever lose. They might lose everything that the world could offer them, but in Jesus Christ, they had gained God. In Jesus Christ, their sin had been removed. They had been set free from the slavery of their sin. They had been brought by Jesus into the nearer presence of God to know Him as their God and to rest secure in His favor obtained for them by Jesus Christ. That's what this anonymous author wanted his readers to see. He wanted them to do gospel economics to do a cost-benefit analysis of the gospel and to see that everything that they had gained through their union with Christ was infinitely worth anything that they might be called to lose. 
the single most important thing for your spiritual health, for your spiritual survival, is seeing the surpassing worth of Jesus. It is seeing the preeminent beauty of Jesus. It is seeing the riches of the gospel that are found in Him alone. It is plumbing the depths and realizing just how rich and full our salvation is and realizing just how secure we are now in the presence of God because of His redeeming work. That, Christian, is the thing that will keep you from ennui. That is the thing that will keep you from weariness. It's the thing that will keep you from frustration. It's the thing that will bolster you when the temptation comes upon you to turn away from Christ, declaring, even if only in your hearts, that what He asks of you is too much. In chapter 8, this letter has reached its pinnacle. The author has described how, how Jesus had brought in a new covenantal relationship between God and His people, a better covenantal relationship in which that core problem of sin has finally been dealt with as God has covenanted to remember the sins of His people no more. As you know, we, we talked about it in Sunday school this morning, but even if you weren't there, you probably heard enough of my preaching, or you know enough of Scripture to know that the Bible is really just telling one story. It's the story of Genesis 3.15, Sinclair Ferguson's famous comment that all of Scripture is a footnote to Genesis 3.15. It's one story, the story of that promised son of the woman coming into the world, this promised Son who would secure a redemption for a humanity bound now in their sin. A story that throughout Scripture, through the series of covenants, is elaborated and expanded. That first embryonic covenant in Genesis 3.15 simply telling us that all of it will be pinned to the obedience of, of one man. But with each successive covenant, the glories of this covenant being filled out and expanded, and all of it coming to its head in that covenant with David, in which God promised that the redemption that would come through that son of the woman would result in a glorious kingdom set apart to God, marked by their relationship with God, a glorious kingdom redeemed and ruled over by a glorious king whose reign would have no end and under whom they would have peace and rest in the presence of God forevermore. But with all of these covenantal promises that God had made, as He has gloriously revealed more and more about this coming kingdom, and more and more about this great messianic king who would, who would redeem His people and, and reign and rule over them forevermore. In all of it, one great thing remained elusive, an enormous elephant that stood in the corner of the redemptive room. None of these covenants dealt with sin. They wonderfully describe the restored relationship between God and man that would come through the work of that son of the woman. 
But none of them dealt with the greatest obstacle to that restored relationship, the sin that separated humanity from God, that enormous chasm that separated a holy God from a sinful humanity. But in chapter 8, the author has said to us that in Jesus Christ, the new covenant has been established. A new covenant in which the final piece of this redemptive puzzle has been slotted into place. In this covenant, our author has said, this covenant foretold by Jeremiah and Ezekiel and and Isaiah and, and really woven like a golden thread through all of the prophets. In this covenant, God promised to be merciful towards the iniquities of His people and, crucially, to remember their sin no more. It's wonderful, isn't it? You know your sin. You remember your sin. It comes to the fore. You, you, know, you know your recent sin. You know that, that experience of, of lying down at bed at night, uh, in your bed at night after what you thought had been a good day, and suddenly you remember that careless comment. And it strikes your gut as you remember how you've hurt someone that you loved. And you did it inadvertently, but you did it. Or you think that you've been trucking along. Maybe you thought you were on a righteous crusade. And you read an article or you speak with a friend and you realize that as well-intended as your actions were, they have been wholly misguided. And something that you have done even in the name of Christ has actually served to wound the church of Christ and compromise the gospel that you profess. Or maybe it's the thought of historic sins. You think of that former life before you came to Christ, and, it, and you just can't shake it. Memories, memories of those things that you used to do, that you used to do without a thought in the world, but, but now they replay in your mind. You remember your sin, but God says to you, Christian, I don't remember your sin. And it's not as if he's just forgotten it. This isn't a case of divine amnesia, right? He knows what you have done, but you understand the Hebraic concept of remembering is remembering with respect to action. And God is saying to you, Christian, you will never be prosecuted for these sins because they were remembered at the cross. And Jesus bore all of that punishment that is, that is due to you for your sin. And the recollection of your sin now in the divine mind only serves to enhance the glory of Jesus. It's not so much that on that judgment day, the heavenly administrator will open your file drawer and there'll be nothing there. There'll be something there, but, but they'll, they'll all be read out and, and, and the declaration will, Jesus will say, I've paid it. I've paid it. I've paid it. I've paid it. I took it. I've paid it. And on that that last day, all of your sons now turned by God as He is only wonderfully able to do that great evil turned by Him for His manifold praise and for the glory of Jesus. He also says that that's what 
what he's done. But, but then he says in, in chapter 8, more than that, not only has he done that, but, but you understand that, that through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, he has come now and he has, he has purified you and sanctified you and his law has been inscribed on your hearts. You understand what the author is saying. There's, there's justification and there's sanctification promised in this new covenant. In, in, the glory, in the glorious work of Jesus Christ, you have been declared to be holy, but in the glorious work of Jesus Christ applied to you by the Spirit, you have actually now been made to be holy before God. It's the covenant for which all of humanity had waited. The covenant for which all of humanity had yearned. Finally, a, a solution to this sin problem that had kept us apart from God. Here God says He will deal with sin. He will sovereignly remove the guilt of His people, and, and He will sovereignly impute a foreign righteousness to you, that you might stand without fear in His presence. It's glorious. A, a better covenant built on, on better promises. But, but, but even here, there is this, this question of, 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 of how, could, how could it be? God has, God has promised to, to forget your sin and, and, and remember it no, no more. He has, he has, he has promised to, to cleanse you of your transgressions. He has promised to credit you as, as holy, but we might stand back and think, but how, how can that not strike at the heart of injustice? Because we might say, Lord, it's just not true. You can, you can say that I'm guiltless before the throne of God, but Lord, it's not true. Lord, you can say that I'm, I'm righteous before you, but it's not true. How can, how can this be true? Well, of course, it's not that it's not that your sin is unpunished by God. All sins are, are punished by God necessarily. He would not be just and, and righteous if it, if it were not so. But God in His grace has said that He would punish another in our place. In His grace, He has said to us that He would accept a substitute to bear the punishment that we had earned through our sins so that the demands of the law might be met and our guilt pardoned. It was the gospel, as the author has been saying, it was the gospel of the tabernacle. As God instituted with Israel this detailed, intricate system of sacrifice, including a sacrifice for sins, this, this burnt offering, the sin offering, the guilt offering, in that priestly work, the sacrificial animal was taken in the place of the sinner. As the sinner brought his offering before the altar, he brought it, you understand, saying, this animal will die that I might live. As he watched the flames of that altar licking the body of that dead animal, the smoke rising up from it, he knew by rights it ought to have been him on that altar. It's what God had said, wasn't it? The wages of sin is death. The very thing that God had, had established at the beginning in the Garden of Eden, that to sin against the holy God is to, is to surely die. But as these, as these, as these worshippers took, took the animals up to the temple, they, were, they, they did it rejoicing that God had promised that He would accept a substitute in the place of the sinner. 
But of course, the problem was that animal sacrifices couldn't actually stand substitute for the sinner. Right? No matter how much you, you love animals, you cannot escape the fact that the Bible places a much higher value on human life than on animal life. We are like animals, of course, but we are not animals. Genesis tells us that it was in two distinct acts that God formed the animals and then formed mankind, and only of mankind was it said that it was created after the image of God and after His likeness, like an animal but not an animal. And so, the death of an animal could never stand as an adequate substitute for the life of a human being. And so, chapter 9, verse 9, these gifts and sacrifices could never truly perfect the conscience of the worshiper. He says that it was the testimony of the curtains and the courts, the, the division that separated the worshiper from the dwelling place of God. Right? It's what he describes at the beginning of chapter 9 is he describes how the, the tabernacle and then the temple were divided up into this series of courts, and the Israelites could enter the first into the courtyard where the altar stood, but, but only the priest could go into the holy place which contained that lampstand and the table with the bread of the, the, the presence, uh, but only the high priest could go further into the holy of holies and stand in the dwelling place of God before the throne of God. And even he could only do that once a year on the Day of Atonement, having gone through an elaborate system of sacrifices and purifications. Symbolically, that high priest took Israel with him into that most holy place, bearing their names on his ephod, having offered sacrifice for their sins as well as his own. But only symbolically could Israel go in there. Physically, they were cut off. Even having offered their sacrifice, they were not purified to the point of being able to enter into the presence of God. In fact, as chapter 10 goes on to say, if they had been able to perfect those who had offered them, those sacrifices would have ceased to be offered. There would have been no need for them to continue. But it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. And so, those sacrifices operated, chapter 10, verse 3, not as a remover of sins, but as a reminder of sins. He spoke to Israel of the gravity of their sins and their desperate need for grace. But, our author says, when Christ appeared, when the promised Son came in the fullness of time, He came as a high priest of the good things that have come. As He came, He brought a perfect atonement for sins because He brought a perfect sacrifice, one, finally, that sufficiently could, could bear the punishment due to our sin. Look again at what He says, verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he, answered, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of blood and goats and uh, the blood of goats and cows, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and Bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, that is, sanctify outwardly, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through this eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, and listen to it, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, He says, because of that, Jesus Christ is the mediator of this new covenant. 
so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since the death has occurred that redeems from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. You, you hear what he's saying? By the spilling of the blood of Christ, the new covenant has been inaugurated, and those promises have been fulfilled, and there is now a perfect forgiveness of sins and a true sanctification. This new covenant has been inaugurated in which we are declared to be perfect through the forgiveness of our sins by the sacrifice of Christ. We are made perfect through the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, and therefore we now are able to do what the Old Testament saints could only ever have dreamt of doing, and we can actually come into the holy places. We can go behind the curtain, and we can stand without terror in the presence of a holy God. And you hear how our author almost falls over himself as he repeats the effects of Christ's work. Verse 12, Christ secured an eternal redemption. Verse 14, Christ has purified our consciences from dead works. Verse 15, we have been given in Christ an eternal inheritance. Uh, verse 26, Christ has put away sin by the sacrifice of sin. Then on to chapter 10, verse 14, Christ has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. It's as if he grabs us by the collar and he says, he says, look, Christian, look at the manifold riches of your salvation. Look at the absolute nature of your salvation. Totally, you have been cleansed from all of your sin. All of those memories of sin that, that strike you in the stomach, that break your heart, all of it has been cleansed by the blood of Christ. Completely, your transgressions have been washed away in Jesus Christ. You have been given absolute absolution through the blood, through the body of Christ broken for you, through the blood of Christ spilt for you, a new covenant has been inaugurated in which you are actually, truly, and fully reunited to God. What the blood of bulls and goats could never do, the blood of Christ has done. Through His perfect substitutionary atoning sacrifice, by the shedding of His blood, Christian, you are forgiven, and you have been brought to God. Really, that is the preoccupation of the book of Hebrews. Not, not just here, not just throughout chapters 7 through 10, but, but the entire book given to us as, as one of the most profound and beautiful descriptions of the atoning work of Christ. As the author rotates the diamond of this gospel to show us the manifold glories of Christ as this long-awaited Son, the long-awaited Redeemer. Here our author lays out the beauty of Jesus' sacrifice. He explicitly shows us how now through Him, the promised Son of the woman, peace has been brought between a sinful humanity and a holy God. Why would he spend so much time playing the same tune? Why would he stress the same theme, which is essentially the, the one theme that he will circle back to again and again and again and again all the way through the letter? Why does he take this singular diamond and rotate it again and again and again for his readers? Because it was 
the very thing, the only thing that would keep them drifting away from God as they were battered by the temptations and trials of life. Why would I preach this at an installation service? Because this is the anchor that will keep Jonas from drifting from God as he is battered by the temptations and trials of ministry. What is it that guards an elder from falling down that, that trap, going down that road that Paul solemnly warns the Ephesian elders of, of suddenly turning aside from the true gospel and leading a congregation further away from Jesus than closer to Him. It's this, and it's, and it's only this, that the remedy to the intense pressures that these Hebrews were feeling was worship. The counsel that the author had for these hard-pressed believers was, was look again and see Jesus and worship Him. Look at Him, see His glory, and fall again before His feet in awe and wonder and exaltation. Right, what does it say at the end of chapter 10? Having explained and teased out what it means for Jesus to be the inaugurator of the new covenant, His big application point, what is it? Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for because this is the reason you hold it fast, He who promised is faithful. There are going to be temptations that will come upon you, Christian, and tempt you to loosen your grip on the gospel. Perhaps you already know it discouragements that have come your way, hard providences that have brought you into a, a state of despondency that you struggle to see your way out of, temptations that have promised you wonderful things. If only you just relax your commitment to Jesus just a little, a little bending here, a little compromise there. Don't be so fanatical about this, and beautiful things are promised to you. From the good and the bad, the temptation constantly bombards us to loosen our grip on the gospel, to take our eyes off of Christ, and to believe that true happiness is actually found somewhere other than in Him alone. It's a temptation for us all. It's the temptation that the Hebrews were on the verge of falling headlong into, the belief that if they just compromised a little, if they were not fanatical, if they just, if they just gave a little room here and, and, a, and a little sway over there, then their life would be so much happier than it currently was. It's a temptation for all of us. But Jonas, it is no less a temptation for you in ministry, and actually maybe more so. What you are set apart to is a high and holy calling. And undoubtedly, it is a wonderful gift from the Lord that in His grace, through the generosity of His church, you are freed from worldly care and avocation, and you are set apart to spend your days tending to the flock of God and studying the Word of God. But there are special trials and temptations here. 
There's a devil who wants to derail you. He wants to pull you down the path of temptation. As wonderful as this congregation is, and this is a wonderful congregation, and I mean that from the depth of my heart, here as much as anywhere, there will be times where it will be hard to minister to them. You will grow discouraged by their progress in the gospel. There will be times when you will be disheartened by careless comments. Or maybe worse, there will be times where you are cut by carefully chosen comments. There'll be times when you will wonder if you're actually doing any good here at all. There'll be times when you will come down from this pulpit and you will wonder if you can preach at all. There'll be times when you will encounter pastoral situations and you will come to the end of yourself and wonder if you have any pastoral wisdom. And in those times, you will be tempted to wander away from Christ, to find a solution somewhere else. You'll be tempted even to find solace and sin. You'll be tempted to look in on yourself and to find success in your own skills and your own abilities. Tim Keller once told a story that when he was in seminary, a visiting minister came and spoke to his class, his homiletics class, and, and he warned them. He said, he said, brothers, as you go into ministry, don't preach for your salvation. And Tim Keller said, sitting there as a, as a young 20-something seminary student, he kind of smirk, mock, uh, smirked to himself and said, what a ridiculous thing to say. I know my salvation. I know what the gospel is. I'm going to preach about salvation. I'm going to preach for my salvation. And he kind of dismissed it. But one day he said he was riding home from, from church, downcast and despondent over what he thought was perhaps one of his poorest sermons. And suddenly those words struck his heart and he realized that he was measuring himself by his performance. That he had placed his hope in his preaching of the gospel and not in the gospel. It's going to be a temptation in all of ministry. And what will keep you from yielding under the weariness of life and, and ministry congregation? What will keep you safe from the, in the face of, of the great temptations that, that come and befall you and the temptations to do similar things, though differently applied, deliberately to, the, the temptation to find, to find security in your own performance and your own abilities, to, find, to go and find solace in sin? What's going to keep you from the temptation to say with Peter, to turn and, and say with him those, those diabolical words, no, Lord. What's going to keep you from, from the temptation to go the way of the world when it's contrary to, to God? What is the anchor of your soul, Christian? It's this. It's remembering the riches of the new covenant. It's remembering how rich and full the forgiveness of your sins in Jesus Christ is. It is remembering the cost of that forgiveness, remembering that it is by the death of Jesus 
Christ, the, the eternal Son of God who took on human flesh to come and obey in every point in which you failed and to, to then obey to the point of death, even death on a cross, to stand in your place before the justice of God and bear the weight of the law against your sins so that you might be forgiven. It is remembering that, that through that gloriously monergistic salvation in which God has done everything required to cleanse you of your sin and draw you to Himself. It is, rem it is remembering that through that and through your forgiveness that you have been brought to God, reconciled to Him, established in a perfect covenantal bond, perfected now and perfected wholly when Christ returns or calls you home. It is remembering that by the broken body and the blood spilt of our Lord Jesus Christ, you have been made fit to spend eternity in the presence of God. C.H. Spurgeon once said in a table address, you, you know this quote, but it's a good one to remember tonight. Spurgeon once said, oh, that I would have the cross painted on my eyeballs that I would not see anything except through the medium of my Savior's passion. Jonas, that's my prayer for you, brother, that as you go on in ministry, you would not see anything except through the medium of your Savior's passion, that that would give you courage in ministry, that that would guard your heart, that it might even give you energy and excitement as you labor amongst a sometimes perhaps often wandering flock. It is my prayer that your heart would be filled constantly with a sense of wonder at all that has been achieved by our Lord, and that you would minister simply from a posture of delight and worship. Let us pray.